There is reason to hope that my experience was wholly or partly a hallucination, for which indeed abundant causes existed. And yet, its realism was so hideous that I sometimes find hope impossible. If the thing did happen, then man must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos, and of his own place in the seething vortex of time, whose merest mention is paralyzing. Welcome to the last full episode of Beyond the Wall of Sound. It's a big one. I've made a lot of jokes about H.P. Lovecraft's style of horror. There's the commonality of tentacled monsters that are funny. It gets a little less funny when you imagine that these things are gods that exist outside of time, so ancient that death doesn't even apply to them. Lovecraft's horrors involve everything that we know to be standard, the things that our consciousness takes for granted on a daily basis. Your sense of time, your sense of being, whether as an individual or as part of something greater, completely obliterated by brain-blasting realization. Lovecraft's horror is the realization of the cosmic rug being pulled out from under you when everything you understand is suddenly wrong. Lovecraft's monsters drive people mad because of what their existence completely redefines, reality itself. What Lovecraft describes is merely a slice of what we can perceive, as though we live and see in two dimensions, and the things that come from his dreams and from his mind are things that suddenly appear before us, existing in three dimensions. These are things that force us to confront the truth, that there are three dimensions, and we're powerless to affect any of them. If the shadow out of time expresses H.P. Lovecraft's fear of changes of consciousness through new knowledge, it expresses it in the extreme. If H.P. Lovecraft's worldview is to be taken into any real consideration, with his openly reactionary, puritanical, and resentful views of life, maybe there's a benefit in pulling the rug out from underconsciousness, swinging wide open the doors of perception. In this episode, we're going to be talking about mind-affecting substances. My interest originally started with the discussion around cognitive enhancement drugs, which is essentially any drug that you take to increase a mental faculty or to focus. They're the mental get-stuff-done drugs, and it includes dietary supplements known as nootropics, Adderall, or even the ever-present caffeine that's in a morning cup of coffee. Andrew Maynard's Films from the Future, which has an interesting and much more in-depth chapter on cognitive enhancement drugs, describes an informal poll of 1,400 people in which one in five people described taking cognitive enhancement drugs. This poll was not concerned with caffeine, but rather drugs like Adderall, Ritalin, or Modafinil, raising the very serious question that, if performance-enhancing drugs exist for professional athletes, why not professionally competitive thinkers as well? It's a fantastic chapter, and I'm really not doing it justice here, but this episode is an offshoot of it, so I thought I'd mention it. We talk a little bit about caffeine, but we also talk about the dangers of another highly socialized drug. Dangerous in part in the ways and degrees that it is common. Alcohol. The CDC states that alcohol results in the deaths of approximately 88,000 people in the United States per year, shortening these people's lives by an average of 30 years. It's a big industry. U.S. alcohol sales in 2018 reached $253.8 billion which is an increase of 5.1% from 2017. This growth is strange because young people, once among some of the largest demographics of drinkers, have been swearing off alcohol at an extraordinary rate, dropping from 92% drinking rate in 1993 to 85% in 2016. Different explanations for this abound. Some say that they do it to feel healthier, others say that they like being in control of social interactions, and that drinking is not needed to make social interactions significant. In other words, it's just not as trendy as it used to be. Some attribute this decline to social media, 
saying that young people spend social time less in bars and more on the internet. As we look into the future, we can begin to wonder what society would be like if we socialized other drugs. And in this case, we're going to be talking about a cognitive enhancement drug, a class apart from all the others I've mentioned. One that gives experiences very similar to Lovecraft's forbidden knowledge or visions of other worlds, though not so sinister. There's a truly staggering amount of misinformation out there about psychedelics, a class of drugs on the Schedule 1 drug list. Schedule 1 means that the FDA has classified that drug as highly illegal, having no medical use and high potential for abuse. There's been a lot of buzz about psychedelic drugs over the last few years, with new experiments after years of testing hiatus. A landmark study in Johns Hopkins ending in 2016 has pushed psychedelics back into public awareness since the early 70s, where some in tests described the psychedelic experience as being the most meaningful experience of their lives, on par or greater with having a child or being married to a life partner. These powerful technologies have been around for a very long time, but only recently have we began to consider again how to implement them properly. Some, like lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD-25, are synthetic technologies, while some are natural, like psilocybin, which is the primary one that we discuss in this episode. Psilocybin is one of the active ingredients in what people call magic mushrooms, which are mushrooms of the genus psilocybe. Psilocybin, like other psychedelics, bonds to the person's serotonin receptors, but creates a system of responses that is far more extravagant than just taking serotonin. Effects of the drug's ingestion can include, but are not limited to, contraction or dilation of the blood vessels, resulting in feelings of heat or cold, synesthesia, very strong sensory mixing, as the brain forms new connections across sectors that don't normally interact, improved cognitive capacity, reduced activity of the default mode network, which may feel responsible for our sense of ego and sense of self, increased confidence, reduced anxiety, and feelings of connection with other people as well as with nature or reality, increased life satisfaction and reduced addictive tendencies, recovery from past, even repressed trauma, and lasting and profound senses of meaning. Any of these psychological effects can last for extended periods of time beyond the psychedelic event itself, causing some people's personalities and neural connections to physically change in favor of openness to new experience or reduced anxiety. There's a lot to go over there, and I have neither the time or the glasses of water to do it. In brutalistically simple terms, a psychedelic experience, psilocybin, LSD, or even a mystical experience brought on by meditation can basically act as a mental reset button, clearing out all the clutter of the mind and allowing you to look at things anew. One can see the potential for psilocybin as an opportunity both for those seeking therapy for depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as for what scientists refer to as healthy normals, those who have no diagnosis but are looking to use psychedelics to improve their lives. It would seem, then, that Lovecraft was half right. We have our minds reconstructed by an alien intelligence, but it's one growing in the ground beneath our feet, or stewing in our labs, rather than coming from dead ages past, or in endless arcades of inky space. Lovecraft is also perhaps too quick to write off alien visions, just as he's too quick to write off human society, or people who were different than him. Anyone looking into the future of human consciousness can be curious about how we are going to try to alter ours in the future, and psychedelics provide an interesting window in which to look at the potential for human change. With me today are the committee members on my thesis project, just like in that episode on life extension, Andrew Maynard and Lauren Withycombe-Keeler. With that out of the way, let's relax and dive in. So hello and welcome back to Beyond the Wall of Sound. For this week's episode, we are focusing on H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time, which is a story about an academic named Nathaniel Wingate Pilling... Pe- Peasley? Pe- okay, I'll say it one more time. <laughs> Nathaniel Wingate <laughs> Peasley. Oh, well, now I laughed. Okay, whatever, it's fine. Say um, it one more time. Nathan- I, I can't. <laughs> 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 We're going to talk about an academic who... 
who uh, he just one day starts freaking out and doing all kinds of spooky things and in class like he seems like he is not as in his own head so to speak the entire time and then at some point he's like catatonic sometimes he's this way for a year or something like that and then he is speaking in tongues uh, and languages that no one has ever heard before and he draws all this weird stuff he's H.P. Lovecraft insane, right? right? So eventually he finds out, though, that he's been possessed by these aliens called the Great Race of Yith, which are, they have, he's like seeing visions of like this old city. Basically, the Yithians are all now extinct, and they, had ha- they at one point inhabited the Earth, but they died out millions or potentially even billions of years ago. I'm not sure. Uh, what H.P. Lovecraft thinks about how old the Earth is, but that the Yithian who is currently possessing him is not the original. It's this echo left behind by their psychic like abilities from when they get destroyed by some kind of ritual or some kind of competing alien race, and so they only exist basically in a few people's minds, and they drive them insane. So I thought that this was... <laughs> Weirdly enough, I looked at this, and I was like, it reminds me exactly of this stuff that I've read about cognitive enhancement drugs. Because, especially because it's couched in an academic sort of fashion, where he's... he's Because if you look at it from a certain expect, uh, or perspective, he's getting all of these visions from this long-extinct alien race that was incredibly powerful. To me, that sounds, at least at face value, that like that could be potentially very useful knowledge. Right. And yet, at the same time, I think it, because this is a horror story, sort of speaks to the societal revulsion and horror at the thought of these otherworldly sort of visions, especially that he's having in an academic context that, well, in this case, are horrifying because he's, oh no, unable to perform his job. Which is, you know... What <laughs> horror! <laughs> well, actually, I, that, that's probably the biggest horror here. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, it is legitimately terrifying right. Um, right. that some sort of alien would... Dead alien would take possession of your mind. But I was sort of thinking, reading about the statistics <laughs> that I had read about originally for your for your class in your book, um, Films from the Future. Thank you. Which I highly recommend that everyone to check out. We're and, done here. Thank you. <laughs> Amazon and yes, I, um, but it has a chapter on cognitive enhancement. Yes, and so what I read things. about uh, that I was rather shocked about is actually how much, at least, the use of cognitive enhancement drugs in an academic sphere as performance enhancing drugs was a thing. Yep. Because when I first was reading about this, I was like, okay, that's an interesting idea, but it's not happening. Yep. It's yeah. So, I mean, I, I so you'll you'll remember. I and I guess this sort of gets to the, the sort of the weirdness of possession at some point. Um, but a few years ago, there was a poll by Nature magazine, and they found that roughly sort of twenty percent of academics who, who responded admitted to using um, sort of mainly sort of off-label drugs occasionally mm-hmm. just to sort of yeah. get them through a particularly hard task if right. they need to get a proposal in or write a paper or something. Mm-hmm. So yes, I mean, it was it was wider sort of. More widely used than people expected, academics and and um, sort of professors using cognitive enhancements to sort of give them that edge when they felt they needed it. Yeah, but I mean, it's to characterize it as some kind of spooky underground academic drug ring is not necessarily <laughs> no. accurate. No, but it's also not inaccurate if you think about uh, Timothy Leary and oh, yeah. um, the psychedelic experiments in Boston in the nineteen sixties. Right. Oh, I mean, or so that was very to... much a in underground experience. Yeah, uh, right. And and so and they were doing, you know, scientific research. I'm gonna I'm gonna not use the word legitimate, but they were doing scientific research on psychedelics, but they were also taking them. Right. Well, right. Yeah, and part of the whole problem with that was if I talk about Timothy Leary, I think my blood might boil, but part of the whole problem was that Part of the reason they were like, hey, you need to stop and we're probably going to kick you out of Harvard at some point was because people would go to Harvard and these psychedelic research sessions were so popular that you would be labeled a square and if you didn't, like, yeah, right. yes. didn't want to do it, everyone yeah. would feel pressured to do yeah. it even if you didn't want to. And it, it was this weird almost like social like cult effect in a university, which... 
I think is is largely response that whole situation and Timothy Leary's responses to it were largely responsible for the decline of psychedelics as a reasonable research opportunity for people for a very long time up up until recently. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, comes into it is though is the distinction about whether it's useful for people who are so to sick so to speak right, uh, right. or whether what people call healthy yes. normals yep. which is the thing with many of these cognitive and other cognitive enhancement drugs it's like okay if you can develop something that can help somebody who is having some kind of a mental problem like if you're having you know it's it's the the principle behind student and especially academic context use of Adderall if you're creating a drug that helps people focus who have trouble focusing right then presumably you can focus way better if you don't have trouble focusing and you just take it. Right, right. So it's bringing... The, the idea there is, is it's bringing everybody up to the, the, the same norm or the same benchmark. In principle, yeah. and in practice, it gets a little leery. I think the term cognitive enhancement yeah. kind of betrays the complex processes that ensue yes. when you are taking either you know a psychedelic or, or um, uh, an amphetamine you are not just enhancing a singular function. You are sort of unleashing an alternative mode of operation in your mind and body. I mean, and, and so yes, the, the whole cult thing around, around Timothy Leary was certainly problematic and he himself was, he was a problematic figure, but the way in which uh, the use of psychedelics transformed him and his approach to his research mm-hmm. and his role in society and his role as a public figure and how he sort of moved from being somebody who uh, did research on psychedelics to somebody who was a sort of psychedelic evangelical right. mm-hmm. uh, I think demonstrates that we're we are doing a disservice to what actually is taking place when we call the use of those drugs cognitive enhancement right oh well yeah i mean it, i'm correct me if i'm wrong but what i what i'm getting from that is that it is definitely a disservice to say that the mystical experiences that can be occasioned by a psychedelic drug like psilocybin or lsd 25 are not at all like the benefits that you get from taking some kind of um you know product that has a far less enhanced mushroom in it that is claiming to slightly improve your mental state over the course of a day. Those those things are very different. Is that what you're getting at? Definitely, but I think cognitive enhancement right. seems narrow, it seems certain, yeah. and it seems one directional. So so part of the challenge here is I mean if you Look at the, the the brain, and as we were saying in the previous episode, the, the relationship between the brain, the mind, the body. Not only is it complex, but it's really finely evolved. There's not a lot of fat there. Mm-hmm. So yes, everybody sort of functions slightly differently, and sometimes you feel you've got a better day or a worse day. But actually, our brain is working sort of full steam ahead. Mm-hmm. There's very little redundancy in there which means you don't have this opportunity to sort of come in and fix what's broken because it's all working. What you can do is change how it works. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's sort of like a, a, a overclocking right. where at a certain point you're going to presumably have to sort of cool off. And th- there's always a trade-off. And if, stop you, if you've got so a hard. finely tuned system, every time you, you make a change in that system, there's a trade-off somewhere else um, in the system. And I think it's very clear with a lot of these things that that's what's happening. It's not necessarily good or bad, the effect, but you have to understand what the trade-offs are. Yeah, and I'm I'm really curious about that because when I was first uh, like looking at this stuff, I remember I was writing about psilocybin and I was like, well, if there's no free lunch, then what's this? Right. Right? Um, <laughs> and I, the, the part of the problem is I think people aren't entirely sure about how like psilocybin or LSD-25 right. really even work. Right. Right. Because they just know that it does. But when so okay, so when you say it works, be a little bit more specific because there's a there's a value judgment in here oh, in terms yeah. of what you think is, well, is it, better. The, the problem is, is it works is itself inherently because of the characteristics of the drugs very inspecific because they're they increase your suggestibility, which often makes it so that people ingesting them will have the experience that they expect to. Right. So if you're saying if you're going in with an intention and you're saying that 
And you're someone who's saying, um, you know, I want to uh, improve my ability to socialize with other people without right. anxiety. Then you're significantly more likely to have some sort of experience like that right. happen. Right. Um, but, it, which is why it's it's very difficult to look at these drugs in a research setting and test them because, first of all, in in the words of Walter Pankey, I think, or no, I think it actually was Timothy Leary, um, you know, after five minutes in a double-blind test, you're not fooling anyone right. about what's going on. Right, right. Uh, right who right. took the placebo and who didn't. Right, right. Um, right. <laughs> The person on the ceiling took this placebo. It's absolutely clear. Um, uh, and, and the other issue is, you know, there, there's this give and take between these ideas of... Uh, there was this idea that, well, we can't have researchers taking them. But then it's also like the researcher has to know what it's like. Do and they? Do they? Some people think that that's yeah, the case, I mean, I but some people think that that's the case, and I think that's largely based upon the radical personality change effects that can happen from a psychedelic experience. Right, but I still don't understand how that means that the, the researcher should take it. I mean, if you yeah. develop... No, at the, yes. during the test, at yeah. the same time, no, they definitely right, should but, not. but even afterwards. I mean, say you're right. developing a, a really extreme um, chemotherapy drug, one of these drugs that, that sort of kills most of the body. And all you you don't the want to you, you see what it's it. like. You yeah. don't need to test it on yourself. Right. right, and you don't, you know, break your leg so that you know what that pain is like that, so that you can properly prescribe that's a, that's oxycontin. A better, that's right. That's, that's yeah. a analogy. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I mean, when we talk about it this way, it becomes very difficult for me to even figure out where that idea comes from. Yeah. So, but to me, this is where it gets down to value judgments. I mean, sort of, if you're interested or fascinated about with these substances, or you're interested in certain effects, what to you determines what is a benefit to you in taking them? And sort of broad, more broadly, what's a benefit within your community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an, an that's a very good point, and so I think to to connect it to my point about you know, should we really be calling this cognitive enhancement? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I view the taking of uh, psilocybin or the taking of Adderall, um, I never think about it as cognitive enhancement. I only think about it as this altered mental state with a set of trade offs, right. some of which mm -hmm. I'm capable of negotiating, some of which remain completely uh, dark to me and I'm not actually capable of negotiating them because I don't know what they are. Right. And, right? and I don't know over, or what period of time they're going to to unfold. And so, you know, I mean, I think I, I end up saying I'm I'm very comfortable in my current state. Right. right. Despite it being suboptimal. <laughs> what, what complicates that even further though is that your your state of mind is definitely a very fluid right. experience and right. also mm -hmm. that it has been found that you can you can occasion the same kinds of experiences that one might have on a drug through other methods, right. such as like right. meditating or, or yeah, mm -hmm. uh, deep spiritual experiences. Or yes. yeah, I mean, when we dream every night, we're not a hundred percent sure right. what's going on, but there, there's something but, there. But a lot of this, to me, and I sort of this may just be the the funny daddy in the room who sort of likes reality as I see it, rather right. than sort of as I could have it. A lot of it comes down to sort of where the value is um, with this, these things. So you could say, yes, you can reach an altered state of mind. Mm -hmm. Why? What, mm -hmm. what is it that, that gives you fundamental value as an individual mm -hmm. and what builds fundamental social value by yeah. doing that? Okay, it's, it's an experience. It helps you see the world in a different way. Sometimes changes your personality. But where is the value there? And I think that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think one of the reasons why this is sort of starting to catch on a little better is there's the saying that. Uh, never mind. I'm going to back up and I'm going to start with an example. Um, as an addiction treatment, there's always been some pretty good evidence for right. the psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. um, yes. yep. And actually now, there was actually just a study that came out this year, 2019, which found that there are, and I'm hoping I'm not characterizing this incorrectly because it's, it's, it's strange, um, that there are, the psychedelic itself has these sort of, these things they bond to your serotonin respect receptors mm -hmm. and mimic, mimic a serotonin 
increased serotonin activity, uh, which makes you feel, you know, more confident and right. more uh, generally happier, uh, lower anxiety. Um, and that's why a lot of these people will get positive experiences even, you know, when experiencing things that to an objective observer are rather terrifying. Right. But there's also this other sort of factor that they sort of, for lack of a better term from me, um, <laughs> clog up the opioid receptors that contribute to addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one factor into that, but there's also the, the mental factor of addiction itself, which is that people who are addicted are in need of a connection, like a social connection or something like that, basically that um, depending on your belief in the causes of ad addiction, though, there is research to suggest that it's not just purely chemical hooks. It's actually a state of right, your, right. Own, it's a, it's your own life and your own social yeah. circle. Yeah. And that on some level, there's also something going on in your mind that isn't entirely chemical, that the experience itself makes you feel more connected and like you have more inherent meaning in your life and that's at the core mm -hmm. a lot of, of a lot of these experiences whether they are spiritual or religious or career guiding or affecting people's social interactions or their romantic life or you know anything yep so uh, to uh to your original question with and uh, using uh paul's um on uh, Paul's example of addiction, I appreciated uh, uh, Michael Pollan's analogy uh, in, in his book, How to Change Your Mind. So, I mean, the question, what is wrong with reality? Um, in the case of the addicted mind, uh, Pollan uses the example of um, a, a ski slope. And you've got a, a fresh, uh, you've got a fresh uh, snowfall, and sleds are going down the hill. And over time, uh, there are certain pathways right. that become uh, overdeveloped, and then all the sl all the sleds go into those pathways. Mm -hmm. And that is a kind of metaphor for the addicted mind sure. that there are these uh, cognitive pathways that are overdeveloped right, through rumination and yes. reinforced yeah. through addictive behavior yes. and that the introduction of a psychedelic experience or, or several psychedelic experiences can be a kind of fresh layer mm -hmm. of snow. Right. And there's a lot of suggestion too that that is the way that people's minds work just in general. I mean, you have more and more intensified mental pathways. And so at certain times people may feel like it's a good idea to sort of hit a mental reset button as it were, and create new mental pathways because that's exactly, as far as we can tell, what psychedelics do. They're essentially creating new neural connections that weren't necessarily there before. Right, right. Um, so if you see them in, in that perspective, they, I'm sort of their, their judicious use offers you as the user a choice. I mean, if this is something that you value or has got health benefits or benefits um, in other ways, it makes sense to explore those yeah. roots mm -hmm. as long and as sort of the, the, the boundaries mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of use in a way that is going to add value to you are mm -hmm. understood. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, what I find really fascinating about this, though, and I think that this underplays a lot of discussions in society about psychedelics in particular, but, but these sort of categories of drugs in general, um, are that they deeply challenge what it means to be yourself and a sense of self-identity. Mm -hmm. So if you have a drug that can change who you are, what does that mean about the validity of who you are, in the, who you are in the first yeah. place? How fixed is yeah, it? I mean, um, and I, you see that on both sides. Mm -hmm. You see that as a, th a deep threat of something that's of value to some people who will strenuously resist these. On the other hand, people who think that who they are is pretty shitty, mm -hmm. it actually gives them a route out. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought we would maybe get to, and so I'm, I'm forcing it, is, um, you know, aside from the legal threshold for what constitutes a, 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 a mm -hmm. drug um, what what about you know how are we drawing the line here because in yeah. in terms of how you are changed uh, and is who you are changed by what you consume I mean I feel myself utterly transformed by coffee <laughs> you know I mean I am a different person at 630 than I am at six and the only difference that that You've I can point to is yeah. caffeine yeah. yes 
Um, and, you know, before I was giving this presentation last week yep. where I knew I had to speak slower and quieter and be more deliberate with my word choice, I didn't have a second cup of coffee because I knew that, that choice, it would be yes. harder for me to control myself in that manner. And I mean, that's a, it's, it's subtle. It's obviously not at the core of who I am, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, an important part But it's part a socialized drug. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm beginning to realize I, I think on some level I'm trying really not to be a as it were a psychedelic evangelist. I don't I would never want to compare myself to Timothy Leary. But um <laughs> I'm glad you got that in. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I'm certainly an advocate for highly controlled use, not necessarily an advocate for people going out and doing it, but I, I would I think there are definitely really useful avenues of research that could be pursued involving, you know, therapy, controlled uh, therapy environments, experienced guides who are licensed, right? and all that could definitely make things way better. But also, but I wanted to say that I, I think one of the big differentiations between the between the drugs that we sort of have been socialized as a society to regularly consume, whether it's caffeine or alcohol, um, is they change who you are at the time, but there's none of them that can give you the experience of not being anyone for a short period of time. And that's what people call an ego death experience. Okay, right. Mm. Um, and I think it's actually rather interesting that people people push back against them because it's like, oh, it dif diffuses the social identity that we have by being able to take any person who's in a social system, you know, take a few hours out of their day mm -hmm. to completely cause them to question who they are. The reason that people come off of these experiences often with a higher sense of meaning is because they come back from that with a much, while who they are, their identity might be different, it's a lot more realized. So, or is it just an illusion of more realization? And does it matter? So and does it last? I mean, that's last? one of the yes. things that they are oh, yeah. also seeing with the research into psychedelics uh, and things like PTSD is that you do see a remission of, right. of some of the most acute symptoms, but they do come back right. In, right. in quite a number of cases. And so... Um, it, and, and that's always the downside of playing with stuff where you don't fully understand the mechanisms mm -hmm. or the, the, the pathways. Um, to what extent do you adopt something because you see short-term or limited success without thinking too much about what yeah. long-term consequences mm -hmm. and, are? And part of that is people are looking at this and saying, okay, we clearly need to do more testing, more research, because people are finding that potentially with repeated use they can eliminate some of these things for some people and though how much things stick around for some people and not for others seems almost completely like a guessing game yeah yeah um, but but to me i again there's a bigger question of where the the value lies here um and how we make sense of of substances like this within society mm -hmm. um because clearly i if there is personal value to taking some of these substances you can ask the question why wouldn't we sort of learn where those boundaries are and mm -hmm. if there's social value as well um and yet if there's a significant danger and i don't think there is but if there is a significant danger of substance use turning to substance abuse in terms of something that degrades value in society how do you begin to sort of identify where those those boundaries are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that the boundaries are there, but that they I would say that they're incorrectly placed. Right. I mean, uh, uh, pretty much every psychedelic is a Schedule One drug, right? Which means that it has no accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. But, yes. But as we've previously mentioned, psychedelics actually combat addictive behavior right, right. and themselves are anti-addictive right people if you have an incredibly intense ex psychedelic experience your odds of wanting to do that again for a long time are really really low mm -hmm. and on the other hand don't people always cite this you've got the socialization of alcohol where mm -hmm. on one hand um it is devastating in terms of its social consequences. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, I, so there are a number of people, maybe not publicly, who would claim that actually it sort of takes the edge off social interactions that just makes things flow a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So I, 
alcohol has got a complex but really important part to play in society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a powerful um, substance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the refrain that alcohol is a social lubricant is really true. Yes. And we're sort of in the, the renaissance of the introvert. Uh, where you know <laughs> right. it is, it is it's, it's um, super in to be an introvert right now, and so we're all sort of discovering that right. in Our actuality, in you know, we don't gain energy from being with others; we gain energy from, from being, being ourselves. ourselves yes. And you know, one of the things that alcohol does is make it easier for us to socialize. When in reality, it actually does take a lot of energy for. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, maybe half the people out there yeah. to socialize, and right. so our lives, whether you know whether we like it or not, are filled with things that perhaps we would not choose to do if we were completely the ones in control of our lives, right. and that bleeds very heavily into our social lives. Yep. So alcohol proves to be a satisfactory and, lubricant. And of for, course, for and so this this brings up the other aspect of this debate, which is power and control. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you just have to look at the debates around um, multiple classes of drugs and, and alcohol and look at what is motivating people who are trying to, to ban their use. Quite often, it's about control. Yeah. Because if you allow their use, you lose control over people, about um, over their social groups, about how they around how they behave. It's only by banning them or restricting them that you regain that control. Mm-hmm. And I think that that actually is a really interesting nuanced way to think about these things who is trying to control the social dialogue mm-hmm. if you like around yeah i mean there's a, there's a really long history of this occurring like even back in uh when spanish conquistadors came to the americas they found that there was this substance that the i believe it was the mayans were consuming that they were saying or no i think it was aztecs they were saying, okay, we can consume this, and this allows us to speak directly with our god. Right. And the uh, the conquistadors decided that they were not having any of that. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, it, I mean, it's it still functions even still today in sort of a, a similar factor that, I and I think it partially due to Timothy Leary, that psychedelics have become sort of inherently linked with the counterculture. Right. Because you're, you're trying to figure out what, a lot of people, at least, are trying to figure out what's meaningful to them right. um, in, in doing this. And some people are just doing it to party, and I don't necessarily agree with or advocate that. Um, but what I think is, is interesting is you're talking about the, the renaissance of the introvert. I, myself, at least, have figured out, thanks to that, that I am not, as I have thought my whole life, to be an introvert. I, at the time when I figured this out, was just the most neurotic extrovert ever. (laughs) (laughs) Terrified by social interaction, but desperately in need of it. Right. Um, So, but what's interesting to figure that into things is you're, in any case, you're creating this sort of a social sphere. I had a thought, but I've lost it. I'll let you reconstruct it and, and, and go with something that I've been thinking, which is... I think one of the things that's really interesting is the relationship between these drugs and the narrative tendencies that we have in our mind. Right. You know, that, that, that there is a, uh, a, we have a biophysical response to the ingestion of these drugs, but we are also these storytelling beings. Mm-hmm. And so we weave these really interesting stories around them. And, I mean, certainly there's something that's going on with the psychedelics that is not just the story that we add on afterward. Mm-hmm. But those stories emerge around alcohol, around Adderall, around coffee. I just told one about how right. I come alive between 6 mm-hmm. and 6.30. You know, that's the way that we turn what is a chemical response yes, to, uh, to the ingestion of a chemical into something that is meaningful yes. and a part of how we understand ourselves in a yeah. complex world. Right. Yeah, I mean, yes. and, and I'm sort of remembering now, mythologically... One of the things is there. there's the suggestion that a vast majority of mythological or religious models, as we understand them, are actually primarily based upon people consuming some sort of psychedelic substance, and then you take that experience and you distill it into something that's a little bit more manageable, like saying, oh, I went down into a cave and I fought a dragon. But... What I, what I wanted to, to hearken back to was there's this idea of power and control, and the psychedelics are a Schedule One drug, which is no except And it's 
I think that's entirely the reason why they're banned because there's definitely like negatively addictive behavior and also people are finding out that they are relative to most things that we can consume are extraordinarily safe like last year psilocybin was called by the guardian the safest recreational drug right uh and i think uh in terms of our cultural consciousness there is definitely that power and authority sort of is exerting itself in the stories that we tell about it um i've talked to a lot of people who I am surprised at how much the stories that they tell about psilocybin remind me completely seriously and not tongue-in-cheek at all of Reefer Madness stories. Right. <laughs> where it's, it pays absolutely no attention to the actual effects the, the of reality, the, yes. the drug or anything yeah. like that. And there's been a large amount of misinformation and myths that and, have been perpetuated. And, and again, I think it comes down to this feeling of a lack of power because somebody is threatening something that's important to you. So I'm mm-hmm. I, I, getting a little academic. I mean, if you look at the work I do around risk innovation and thinking about risks as a, a threat to something that you yeah. value, yep. um, if you deeply value what you think is the right sort of mind and behavior in a person, um, and you deeply value the idea that, that a person is a, a unique identity that, that is not mutable, and along comes a drug that, that proves that they that, are. That proves that, that you're wrong <laughs> yeah. and proves that people can change. That is a deep threat to A, your worldview, and B, your, your ability to sort of have power over others because you think you understand them. So, of course, you're going to resist it. Yeah. Um, and I think you see that playing out. Mm-hmm. And I think it depends, too, on the cultural context in which it's manifested. Like, earlier I was talking about people using it to party. It's sort of a very, like, negative, connotative thing. And I think that, like we were talking earlier with the circles in Harvard, with people feeling pressured into doing this stuff, that's how people decide that it's right. dangerous. Or, But at the same time, if, if you understand that any of these things can have a positive or a negative context, if you go out drinking with your friends and it is a social lubricant and enhances it and you have a good time, no one's going to really balk at that. But if the alcohol is in some way supposedly responsible for you driving your car and right. crashing into a wall, that's an issue. Yes, or it, yes, or if you're an alcoholic. I mean, alcohol is associated with so many problems in society. Yeah. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. where it gets so interesting and doubly interesting because despite the, the conversation around psychedelics and, and various substances, there's now a movement um, towards people actively avoiding alcohol. So you've got the other side yeah. of society where it's seen as a virtue to live an alcohol-free life. Yes, and millennials are quitting drinking at faster rates That's than right. any other uh, age group. So, um, you know, I mean, I think that there is uh, an, an increasing dialogue about the difference between how we schedule drugs as a government and what we decide is best behavior uh, as individuals in society. Those are not necessarily uh, uh, 100% overlap. And I think that this sort of goes to prove that it really does depend on cultural context. I mean, if you look at the way that people interact with alcohol and interact with recreational use of it in different countries... It's a very different idea than I think at least me being someone who is at the perfect time in their life to have some first-hand experiential (laughs) experience at how people behave in a recreational setting uh, with alcohol. Um, Because you've never ever experienced that before you reach that critical moment. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, And nobody else does either. No, nobody else does either. But the, like, for example, I I spent some time in Germany, and one of the things that we were noticing is that they have a a lower, and this is just anecdotal, but they have a lower drinking age. Mm -hmm. And it's very much less of a cultural taboo both in positive and negative ways to be drinking yep so absolutely right people aren't are less prone to misbehavior because they don't see alcohol narratively as this thing that says it's time to let out who i really am and screw the rules and potentially the furniture in my house like i'm gonna break it um (laughs) so so i so i have to say um from a european perspective the, the American attitude towards drinking ages and alcohol is very immature. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there's some interesting research on on addiction as uh, as a disorder of learning, mm-hmm. um, and that the way that we encounter drugs 
like set and setting right. uh, in the case of psychedelics um, also matters for things like alcohol. So episodic exposure at particular right. times in your life, having infrequent access yep. to mm-hmm. something is more likely to create long-term dependency yep. than, than regular mm-hmm. access yep. in small quantities. I, yeah. yeah. So, so I have to say, and I, so I'm slightly tongue in cheek with my sort of immaturity. No, I, I mean, because, I because at the same time, if you look at say the, the drinking culture in the UK or somewhere like, um, Scotland, yes, we become normalised with earlier, and we—I would say—we mature in our attitudes earlier. But that doesn't negate the fact that um, amongst young people, there is still a very serious alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. So right. 14, 15, 16 year olds—it just happens earlier. Right. Yes. Get it out of the way. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a, a cultural context thing, and that's not something that somebody is necessarily realizing. Because also, I mean, if it's if it's a question of you sort of have to be there to understand, which is a much more convincing thing with psychedelics than with alcohol, where you, in order to understand what people are talking about, you right. kind of have to. I, so that that we get back to yes, you do have to have some sort of inner understanding, right? Yes. Um, but but with with in the case of alcohol, it's very easy to find people who are very familiar with. Right, yes. And which yes. is why as a result when you talk to your friends, you don't get stories like I had a friend who was drinking one night and then he looked into the sun until he went blind and then stabbed his brother. Like <laughs> that sort of thing doesn't really come up terribly often. Right, because it doesn't ring true because yeah. everybody's sort of familiar yeah, with Yeah, but there are plenty of other terrible stories about people doing stuff when they're oh, drinking. Yeah. They just yes. didn't look at the sun first. Yes. <laughs> they just stabbed their brother right, they went right, straight yes. to it. Right. More efficient. And yes. the interesting the thing that fascinates me about how obviously the sentence setting, which by the way is the both the mental state that you have and also the physical area in which you are consuming the drug, which I think is true for any of these drugs, which I at least see as being very powerful technologies. And they're natural technologies in a lot of cases, but they're they're powerful nonetheless. Um is that you completely lose what you're talking about mid-sentence. May I suggest the emerging research set on the micro-dosing of psilocybin as a way to improve your cognitive functioning? <laughs> well, I, the funny thing is, is at Do least... Do you personally recommend this? I don't, I don't. I'm <laughs> merely point gesturing to the research. As, right. as far as that's something that is uh, uh, interesting, I mean, there's not... A whole lot of research. I mean, there's not a whole lot of research on psilocybin in general, but there's far, far less about microdosing, which sort of actually makes me want to circle back to the question of dosage being very, very relevant. Right, right. Which is true if you think, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it as being a powerful technology. Right. Because if you think of alcohol as a social lubricant, a lot of the time, I think there's sort of the implicit idea that you are drinking an amount that you can handle. Right. But if you drink far too much in a negative set and setting, things are going to go wrong. A similar thing can often happen with any other mind-affecting substance. Yeah, I just don't think that we can discount the the diff, very different effects, addictive qualities of these different types of drugs. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because alcohol is something that a small exposure repeated over time creates tolerance right. and an increase in its addictive capacity. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that is distinct from mm-hmm. from psychedelics. Oh, for sure, because psychedelics are non-addictive, and going back to microdosing, one of the things that I wanted to mention is people can build up tolerance. A lot of the research that I've read, and actually because I'm super interested in this stuff, uh, interactions with people in certain online communities, suggesting that like if you're building up a tolerance to that too, it's highly pretty unpleasant. Because you're sort of always con- constantly, evidently, in some kind of state of mind that's you're not sure is quite what you view to be normal. Right, right. That's definitely a, a certain measure of it promoting that anti-addictive behavior where the easiest thing and most obvious thing to do is just stop and it's not really an issue. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. Yeah. Sort of reminds me of, of um, Andrew's... Um, repeated reference to sort of what it, what is it that you value right. and what mm-hmm. is it about reality that is such that you are seeking out an right. yeah. mental state. Yes. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think comes up very frequently in these psilocybin 
trip narratives, at least for people who are doing significant enough doses that they have a significant experience, is they end up coming back and saying that it's not at all about looking for a different reality. It's that that coming back into reality with this in this altered state sort of makes them think that they had not realized how much they enjoyed reality as it is to begin mm, with. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is, I think, potentially a manifestation of a chemical occurrence that mm-hmm. is reducing addictive behavior. We're basically saying I which is why possibly psychedelics are anti-addictive, which is that you you're looking at reality and saying, I this is wonderful. I don't see any reason why you would want to change things. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yep. So it looks like we are running out of time. Um, so thank you very much, both of you, for coming and talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. It was um, fascinating. It was, yeah. I, I've got to say, it was a trip. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. We okay, can end on that. That's, that's fine. Thank you for having us. that episode over, I'd like to direct you towards some resources. If you're interested in psychedelics research, check out the articles I've posted, as well as MAPS, or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Oh, jeez. I'd also like to advocate the Zendo Project, a nonprofit dedicated to reducing psychedelic harm, an issue all the more salient as many people who buy psychedelics do so underground and take them without safe procedure or supervision. If you're interested to dig deeper into psychedelics out of curiosity, Michael Pollan, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, Cooked, The Botany of Desire, and Second Nature, has a book called How to Change Your Mind. It's an interesting read on what is a very deep topic. Finally, I'd like to thank my committee members for being on this podcast and for helping me have this idea come to being. I'd like to thank Voidbreaker as well, as always. For this episode, I used his song, Interactions with a Pan-Dimensional Being. I do have one more episode coming up, but it's sort of a bonus episode. It's probably going to come up later. That's a discussion with a friend of mine, Sage, about H.P. Lovecraft, the self, science, art, and what it was like making this podcast. And it doesn't have any neat nuggets of scientific knowledge. It just has good conversation. If you're interested... Be sure to give it a listen when I release it. If not, my time has come. Thank you, and farewell in all of your learning.